0: Welcome to Because It Is, a conversation about faith, justice, and other things that matter. This podcast is hosted by Second Baptist Downtown in Little Rock, Arkansas. Second Baptist is a vibrant, historic downtown congregation whose faith compels us to seek justice, care for the oppressed, and pattern our lives after the way of Jesus we are a unique Baptist church that prioritizes diversity and inclusion for all. In this episode, we talk with Rabbi Eugene Levy about the Jewish American experience. Rabbi Levy shares with us thoughts on Judaism in today's culture. He shares what he wants others to understand about the Jewish faith and how that faith has shaped his perspective. We hope this episode creates a greater appreciation for our Jewish brothers and sisters.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Because It Is. We're thrilled to have you with us for this episode today. May is Jewish American Heritage Month, and we at Second Baptist Church strive to be intentionally interfaith in our relationships, and we believe God's peace has to do with every single human, and uh, the religions should foster that peace, uh, not be stumbling blocks to that peace and so we wanted to honor the Jewish experience in this country, and so I invited my friend uh, Rabbi Gene Levy to join me on this podcast. Um, Rabbi Levy has been a good friend of mine, uh, and one of the few people that we've invited back to the podcast. Rabbi, I don't know if you know that or not, but Uh, Usually one is enough for everybody else, but we can't get enough of uh, Rabbi Levy. So welcome back to the podcast. Nice to be with you. And, you know, the rabbi has been a friend, not just to me, but to Second Baptist Church, teaching Sunday school classes and uh, being a part of panel discussions. And uh, Rabbi, I so appreciate your friendship on a personal level, uh, but also very much on a professional level too. So thanks for being you and thanks for joining us.
2: I appreciate that, thank you. That's a, a very gracious introduction.
1: Well, thanks. Um, I thought we might begin today just by learning a little more of your story. You know, I consider you a very close friend and yet there's much of your narrative that I'm, I'm unaware of. So uh, tell us a little bit about your journey uh, as a Jewish American. Well,
2: uh, I'm from uh, San Antonio, Texas. Grew up there in a in a moderately religious family. Um, certainly not orthodox from a from a literal perspective, but uh, observant and um, involved in temple activities in San Antonio all my life. Involved in Sunday school and youth group and. Um, it was kind of a rebellious kid for a while um, until I hit ninth grade. And I remember a ninth grade Sunday school teacher who defined Judaism for me as something that I could finally grab onto when he said, Judaism is a way of life rooted in religion. Simple, a way of life rooted in religion. And throughout all my, you know, my, my college and seminary and professional life, that that definition that I learned when I was in the ninth grade in 1960 or 59 or something is still one of the most profound statements that I have ever heard. I haven't heard any, any definition that surpasses that because we are a way of life. And I know we'll deal with this in further questions, but but that's kind of the way I grew up is that our religion is our way of life. Um, I attended San Antonio College for two years, transferred to the University of Texas. Uh, It was there where I met my future bride uh, at the uh, Hillel Foundation. Hillel is the equivalent of the Baptist Student Union or Wesley Foundation on campus uh, at the University of Texas, um, majored in uh, history and, uh, and uh, Hebrew, and at that point uh, decided to go uh, to rabbinic school. Uh, rabbinic school was in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, clear cut and simple, which I'll explain how it's changed over times. So I I did five years of seminary work. Was ordained in 1972, 50 years ago. You know they ordain you when you're three. So (laughs) um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm celebrating my 50th year as a rabbi. Hard to believe. I used to think when I was a you know a, a young rabbi in my late 20s, early 30s that the that the guy and at that time it was just guys. Who hit 50 years in the rabbinate they were old I mean they were old old uh, somewhere between 80 and death. and right. um, now I'm there and I can't believe that you know 30 year olds will look at me and say god he is so old he is an old rabbi but anyway, I don't see
1: you as old I see you as wise and well seasoned that, that's, what that's very well seasoned is a
2: is a great euphemism for old <laughs> Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you've learned that well, Preston. You're, you're, you'll, you'll, you'll make a good, a good preacher with um, yeah. with, with euphemisms like that. Uh, in any case, uh, my first uh, pulpit was uh, the Hillel Foundation at the University of Oklahoma uh, for three years, a, a nice rival school to the school that I went uh, to, to. So when I was being interviewed for that position, um, back in, uh, in my senior year at the, at, the, at the seminary, the first question was come October every year when Oklahoma plays Texas, uh, how are you going to put your uh, loyalties? And uh, I had to be careful. And I said, when, when I'll, I'll be for Texas, I'll be for Oklahoma, except when they play each other. And uh, that, that, uh, now I'm hoping for a tie. And uh, that, that seemed to get me the job. I was at the University of Oklahoma Hillel for three years. Um, Went from there to Tyler, Texas, Uh, the buckle on the Bible belt, as it was called then, and I think it still may be today. Um, Twelve wonderful years there, and as a matter of fact, we're going back uh, in a couple weeks. They're going to help me celebrate my 50th year uh, as a rabbi by doing a special service and uh, reception for me in in Tyler, Uh, stayed in Tyler from 1975 to 87. And at that point uh, came to Little Rock at the behest of Temple B'nai Israel and served the congregation here um, actively for 24 years, uh, retiring in 2011. And since then have worked with uh, small pulpits, smaller pulpits um, in Arkansas and Louisiana and uh, a few life cycle events from here to there. Uh, going to Second Baptist uh, a couple times a year to talk to a a wonderful Sunday school class, and uh, love going there. Can't wait to go back. Can't hint, hint. And um, other other congregations here. Life Quest. Uh, just love teaching. Adult teaching has become my my favorite, favorite, favorite of all things to do. And that's where I am today. Yeah.
1: Well, congratulations on your 50th uh, year of ministry. I celebrate that with you and, and honor you for that. That's no small work. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I wonder in those years, in your own personal journey, but also as someone who has uh, shepherded Jewish people for most of your life, uh, what are some of the struggles of being a Jewish American that you've seen? Have, have you experienced anti-semitism or uh cared for people who have along the way you know i think back on that i I don't
2: think i've personally experienced anything anti-semitic in terms of physical harm uh or anything detrimental to my family or our home or property I think it's more like just people not being aware of what Judaism is, um, thinking that, um, you know, maybe if they work on me hard enough, I'll convert to the true religion. Um, Not really knowing much about Judaism other than some stereotypes. Um, giving you one example, uh, which I may have shared with you before, I'll do it quickly. Uh, I was teaching at uh, uh, giving a class, I won't mention the university, but a small college in South Arkansas a few years ago. I was talking about stereotypes and uh, things that uh, we never, I'm sure, from the Baptist religion, from the Catholic religion, from Islam there are things that you never want to hear said about your religion that, you know, all Baptists are blank. All Jews are blank. All blacks are blank. So I was giving a talk on stereotypes. It was kind of a panel. And um, I said, for example, it's not true that all Jews are wealthy. And I looked in the back of the class and there was a young lady was kind of slinking down in her chair behind her desk as to become invisible. And I you know, said, uh, pardon me, uh, did I say something to offend you? And she said, no, she says, but, but my father is the local minister here and he always talks about Jews and wealth, that all Jews are wealthy. That was her father as the minister. And of course the minister's word is gospel, right? So then, that all the congregants believe that I said, you know, if you go north of St. Louis and you go to the northeast and the and the, and the north central, about twenty percent of the Jews you find live below the poverty level, mm. and they she couldn't believe that she thought you know everybody was a uh, uh, you know an Elon Musk or something. I mean, he wasn't in the news then but uh, you know a Rockefeller or a Ford and I mentioned like the top 20 of the the wealthiest families in the country none of whom were Jewish and she thought maybe all of them were Jewish because they had money so these are the types of stereotypes and of course you know I've had people look and say you know well I don't see any horns on your head you know and, and that was a stereotype from Michelangelo's you know, sculpture of Moses uh, mm-hmm. that he had. And so misinterpretations, mis- mis, um, misuses of the Bible, uh, those are the things that I've encountered most often. Um, so I would say in terms of anti-Semitism, personally, uh, not much other beyond the, the academic or the uh, institutional
1: you know, just listening to your journey, uh, you mentioned Tyler, Texas, Norman, Oklahoma, Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, and you even said, you know, buckle of the Bible belt. Uh, Most of your professional life, you were in thoroughly Christian contexts. What do you think uh, most Christians miss because we're so much in the majority in, in terms of a religious culture? You know, what, what do we miss? What do we oversee? What are we blind to in terms of uh, religious minorities who are are sharing our zip code with us?
2: Good. Oh, I like that. Zip code. Um, I think you know. I, I think it it boils down maybe to one the word truth.
3: Mm.
2: Okay, because so many folks who are on the on the right in any religion. In other words, it's it's our way of the highway type of thing that we are the truth and that everybody else is, you know, lost on their journey. Um, I had a professor once who who kind of put it in a a great way. I mean, I see a a, a fan above your head there, but imagine it's a a chandelier, a beautiful chandelier of, of diamonds. And the diamonds, you know, no matter where you are in your room, you, you see various facets of that chandelier. You can be where you are. You could be over to your right where the window is or to your left, you know, where the uh, something on the wall or behind you. And wherever you are, you're looking at that chandelier and you're seeing it differently. But you might say, well, that's the truth because that's what I see as you miss the other three quarters around on the other side. right? And so I've always had a problem with the word truth with a capital T, that we, that you, that somebody has the truth and right. that leaves everybody else with no truth or little pieces of truth that, uh, that really are not um, uh, worthy. Of, of, of discussion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think about that often. You, you know, it's so easy to start thinking, I have the truth. Mm-hmm. And yet all of us, in, in all the major religious traditions, humility is a virtue, right? And so um, maybe it's not so much that the truth belongs to me as it is I belong to the truth. Ah, yeah. and And therefore... You can be my teacher and and I'm not just trying to, to convert you to Christianity any more than you're trying to convert me to Judaism, but we are mutually learning from each other. Uh, that seems to me to be a healthier approach to the truth. Would you agree with that? I
2: do and, and I think those who may be to the let's say and I don't want to use this in, in strictly political terms, but let's say those who are to the center left in terms of Christian theology, Jewish theology, Islam, are more open to you know the interfaith, the that we see truths in 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 everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, The the kind of the what's the old we used to call the old rainbow coalition that that different colors and different stripes are all part of the same rainbow. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm finding. I think in the religious world, I'm finding more and more of of, of kind of a cooperation that that uh, even though the the interfaith alliance and the, is not as strong as it used to be, I don't think there's as much, at least from what, what I'm seeing, as much um, antipathy toward somebody who doesn't believe like you do. I don't see it. Other people may see it. Um, I, I think I saw it more in Tyler because Tyler was a little more uh, politically and religiously to the right than Little Rock is. Little Rock happens to be kind of a, a moderate bastion in a, in a in a sea of red, so to speak. Um, but, but I'm I'm thankful for the for the friends like you and, and LifeQuest and ministers that I've known through my tenure here who have been very open to learning about Judaism and, and allowing me to teach and teaching me about them.
1: Mm-hmm. When you scan the horizon right now in this peculiar moment in time, uh, do you have any specific concerns about uh, the Jewish American experience right now? Yeah.
2: yeah, that's a very relevant
1: question, mainly because...
2: The seminary that I attended in Cincinnati, Ohio, which was the foundation stone for the Reform, Reform Jewish rabbinate, is going to be closing. Mm. Um, we have schools, I mean, this could be a long, 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 long answer, but I'll try to, we have, we have four branches of the Hebrew Union College, which is the Reform Seminary. Cincinnati was the bedrock. That was the foundation stone in 1875, 150 years ago or so. Then New York, and Los Angeles, and Israel—all three, you know, major, major, major centers. Hard to manage a, a, a campus of, of of four branches, especially because the number of rabbis coming in to the seminary has tailed off badly. Badly. Um, I don't know if it's like that in the Baptist seminaries, but I'll give you a brief example. When I was ordained in 1972, uh, I had 36 in my class in Cincinnati. There were about 15 in New York. Uh, Los Angeles was just beginning. It, it was like a, a a junior college graduate school with, with two years only. So, you'd go there, then you'd move to New York or Cincinnati. So, there were like 50, 50 folks who were ordained in 1972. In, In 2009, when I attended an ordination because one of my students was being ordained as a rabbi, she had 14 in her class. I was just at a bar mitzvah this weekend with a student rabbi from Lafayette, Louisiana who said there are five in his class, five. In a graduate school, you know, of major proportions, he has five in his class. The incoming class coming back from Israel, anywhere from three to six. So what's happening is that this school is closing in four years. They'll have nobody coming in the first year, then that, you know, then that will attrish Up to the fifth year. The second thing is that when I was in seminary, you knew where you were going to school, and you knew where you were going to be ordained. I'm mentoring a student now in Israel, a woman, a woman student, woman graduate student, and she's taking a couple courses from this seminary and a couple courses from that seminary and a couple courses online. And I said to her just recently, I said, "So where are you going to be ordained when you know when you finish your fifth year?" I don't know. Hmm. So there's this nebulous uh, type of thing now, which I've seen in religion. There were people that aren't even identifying much uh, specific. You know, Christians may identify as Christian, but they're not as much saying, "I'm Presbyterian," "I'm Baptist," "I'm Lutheran," "I'm, I'm Christian." i'm jewish well where are you going to seminary here there it's it's a lot more nebulous now
1: right
2: and it really is kind of disconcerting because i don't know what the future is going to be for congregations because of covid and being online people saying i can go to services in my pajamas (laughs) you know without getting dressed without traveling i can go to a funeral sitting in my home Right? Right. I can do Sunday school without showing up. What is that going to do to congregations? What is that going to do to the idea of communion and community? So yeah. I'm 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 concerned about that, but I'm not a congregational rabbi, so I don't have to, I don't have a specific worry about what's going to happen to my congregation. Just right. in general, it's just very, very different now.
1: Yeah. I think we're facing all of those same challenges. In in fact, I find that striking that you just described that, and and maybe in a time where all things in our society seem to be destabilized, right? This is just a season of chaos. Uh, Maybe maybe this is a season where we could truly learn from each other uh, about how to be people of faith in a brand new world uh, post COVID. because everything you just described in terms of uh, clergy dropout, clergy training, uh, healthy churches—all of those are concerns that we share right alongside you in the in the Jewish tradition. Um, I wonder, as you've encountered uh, particularly Christian people along the way, what are some myths about Judaism that that you wish you could? Uh, Wave a magic wand and dispel in our culture. You mentioned one about wealth previously. Are there any other myths that you wish you could dispel?
2: Yeah, I, I taught a course at the, at LifeQuest
1: called um,
2: uh, "Myth Conceptions that people have of Judaism." I wish I could. I wish I had that in front of me right now. But so many of them actually come from Bible interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where folks, you know, I think, have a, a misreading. I, I think they, I, we may all do that. I mean, I think I, I learned years ago that politically, if you're on the left, you you have a left, you know, you look at the Bible uh, very openly, uh, you know, what Jesus was all about, what the prophets were all about. I mean, I'm doing something now about how the prophets are woke, and how Jesus was woke, and how God was woke. How about that? But I, I I think there's a a misconception of the prophets, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, and and I've had a lot of discussion about that. Where, you know, where so many of my friends will say, "Well, yeah," the the main role of the prophet was to prophesy the coming of Jesus, Mm -hmm. and I'm saying. All right, so you take the Bible literally, oh yeah so well, so, so show me just show me one verse in the prophets, one where Jesus is mentioned as prophet as being prophesied
3: mm-hmm.
2: well, his name is out there, but it so what a, a shoot from the stock of jesse I said, well that could be David, that could be you know um wow behold he was he was uh, stricken for our sins
3: Mm
2: -hmm. so well that could be the prophet himself right yeah well that's what it means i said well it's in the past tense right i was and a prophecy is usually in the future tense Mm -hmm. so how can that be a prophecy well it just is you just have to have faith right so you know once once i throw the faith thing in there There's not an awful lot you can do. Right. You can argue. I've learned you can argue history and you can argue text, but it's very hard to argue faith. Right. So, you know, you go your way, I'll go mine. But I'm sorry, that's really not what the prophets were all about. Right. I'm trying to tell them, you know, the word the Hebrew word for prophet is Navi, which is to bring. So the prophet brought God's word to the people. You know, what did God want them to do now? That's our right. prophetic role. That's what your role And What do you want your people to do, not in 500 years, you know, or, or 800 years? What, what's the role of Second Baptist Church in the community today and the rest of this year, not in 500 years? Right. So that's the role of the prophet, not to predict the coming of somebody 800 years from now. Right. So, you know, biblical interpretations, that may be my strongest uh, wish of 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 discontent. Uh, and then that affects views of, of Judaism because, you know, I'm sorry, you're really not, you know, a Bible person because you don't believe. I remember somebody gave me once a, a booklet called 365 Predictions of Jesus in the Old Testament.
3: Yeah.
2: And I looked through there and I said, there's not one. Not only is there not 365, I don't see one. Right. So, well, you just, you know, you just don't have faith. Yeah.
1: Okay. And, And I think this is a perfect place for us to pause for a second and talk about how learning from other traditions can enrich your own, right? So I... For much of my life, when I thought of prophecy, I simply thought of that predictive, like crystal ball element, right? Like a prophet was someone who just predicted the future. But then you actually read the prophets, and you read about what they care about, um, and you see the way that they uh, imagined the world, uh, the way that they used alternative metaphors, the way that they challenged powers, the way that they he gave hope, the power. To, right, right, right. right. Uh, they gave hope to despondent people, and they embodied their messages, you know. And so, uh, just the other night, I was uh, talking to a group about uh, Jeremiah buying fields in Anathoth, right? When, when everyone else would have been selling fields, <laughs> because they. Uh, we're about to go into captivity, and yeah. um, property values were plummeting. And this act of buying fields was a tangible sign of hope and renewal. We we have a future, and that's that's a so that's so much richer than someone who's trying to predict the future that no human can really do. Right? It's Uh, that's a better understanding of what prophecy is.
2: Especially when it's five or 700 years down the road. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, Often I use the little gimmick. I say, um, um, I don't know how much time we have on this, but I want to give this a little bit of time on this because I think it's worthy in this discussion. I say to the class, all right, I want each of you to, to imagine a letter that you are typing, writing." emailing to a friend in Chicago or New York uh, and telling them what your daily schedule is. What do you do on a given typical, typical day, a Tuesday, a Thursday, from the moment you wake up, without getting you know real personal, but from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, okay? And you'll get something like, um, Oh, okay. I'll I'll volunteer, Rabbi. I, I get up at you know six fifteen. I, I like to uh, now these days I like to do wordle. Uh, I would have never <laughs> said that before. I had no idea what that was, but now so many of my friends that's the first thing they do when they wake up in the morning. Great, I love it. So you know, and I'll look at the paper, and then I'll I'll fix a cup of coffee, and maybe have some cereal or a donut. And then I'll head off to work. Well, where do you work? Well, I, I go to the First National Bank downtown, and I have an office in the building. Great. And I, you know, I have a few clients. I'll work out till lunch, and I'll go out to lunch with a, a couple of my friends. Come back, work some more. Uh, go home to my wife, my husband, whatever, my my partner. Uh, take a look at the paper uh, again um, online, of course. Uh, maybe watch a little TV, have dinner, uh, and and then uh, read, uh, reading a great novel, and then I go to bed. I say, that's great. That's great. Now, I counted up in that talk 16 times that you use the word I. Okay, so your friend is reading this letter and says, okay, Joe, okay, Preston, who is the I that you're referring to? you say it's me me of course me i'm talking about me no they said but you wrote i i did this i did this i did this i did this who is that "I." it's "It's me great so when a prophet says i this happened to me why does it have to be somebody who's predicting 800 years from now why can't it be the prophet himself he's doing something autobiographical Things happened to the prophet. People hated him for his, you know, he's out of his country. He's out of his his, his, his Medina. Uh, get out of here. You know, we don't want to hear that. This is what happened to me. This is what happened. I said, that's what they're writing about. So if your letter can be about you, when you say I, why can't the prophet's letter be about him when he writes I? Right. Hmm, never thought about that. Okay. Well, that's, you know, kind of a a teaching method that I like to use, I like to use, and and it often works at least temporarily.
1: Um, I wonder if we can take a similar posture towards the Torah. Uh, I think there's also some Christian misperception about, uh, the law and, uh, I remember in seminary learning that the word Torah can mean teaching, uh, wisdom as much as it means law. Yeah,
2: yeah. There's Torah with a capital T and there's Torah with a a small t. When you say the Torah,
3: mm -hmm.
2: the Torah, you're talking about the scroll, the five books of Moses, Mm -hmm. uh, that if you go to any synagogue, you'll see it in the ark, uh, you know, with a, a nice cover on it. But when you just say Torah, I'm learning Torah, that's any kind of learning. Mm -hmm. A Torah class that you would teach doesn't necessarily have to be about the Torah. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: It can be about literature, it can be about theology, it can be about, you know, politics, it can be about anything where you're learning something.
1: Yeah. And so I think when, when people hear the word law, they think of these stringent boundaries there's not even anything to think about. You just kind of uh, uh, almost in, ingest it and uh, do it and and there's nothing to interpret. there's nothing to discern. And yet the word Torah itself means teaching and learning and wisdom. Uh, so again, I think this is one of those places where the Jewish tradition could help. Christians understand how to read what is in our own biblical text as well. Yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, if you, you know, if you're talking about the Torah, for example, first of all, people say the Ten Commandments. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And
2: we have to say, you know, no, there's really a 613, because every time there's a thou shalt or a thou shalt not, you know, that's a commandment. Mm -hmm. So the, you know, do you have you heard about the kosher laws? oh yeah, you know, you can eat this and you can't eat that. I said, t- show me in the Ten Commandments where there's kosher laws out mm-hmm. there, okay? Right. The laws of, sac- all the laws of the sacrifice, right? That the, that the Aaron and, the, and his sons and the priests used to do, what they brought, when they brought it, how they brought it, none of that's in the Ten Commandments and yet it's a commandment. So I said, you know, if you if you take the the 613 Commandments you put them aside and you take all the begetting and the begetting out you have a a, a really interesting narrative of of a, of, a, of a Jewish people wandering um, and before that if you look at the you know the book of genesis you have a you have a story of of a couple of dysfunctional families <laughs> and 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 uh, and uh sibling rivalry and and uh mother loved you best type of you know the smothers brother you're too young to remember the smothers brothers but they they always had this mother loved you best type of 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 uh, back and forth yeah that was you know with jacob and esau with with their with their parents so you have an incredible story um that's way beyond as you said way beyond just harsh law right and then if there's a you know there's a law, they say well Jesus came to abolish the law, um and so you know when it comes to um all of a sudden when it comes to abortion, we go back to the we go back to one one verse in Leviticus that that, that overshadows everything. But what about this? Well you know that's that was back in those days, but right. Leviticus eighteen twenty two you know that still holds. Well, who says that one still holds? And none of the others holds.
1: Right. You know, who
2: died and made you God?
1: Right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'll give you one other personal example from my own life of how Judaism has enriched my journey. And that's the practice of the Sabbath. Um, I I think um, one of the most salvific books I've ever read is Abraham Joshua Heschel's work on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, right? In in which he talks about the Sabbath being a temple in time, and a, a social leveling. You know, for one day a week, um, I'm not boss and employee and functionary. I'm human, and. Uh, we can play and remind ourselves about a God who delights in creation. I'm convinced that has saved my soul uh, more than once in my life. And I, I, I just see so much wisdom in the Jewish tradition, which is the, the fountain from which Christianity flows. And it seems to me that the closer we live to that fountain, uh, the more life giving it is in so many ways. Uh, And I, I just I have a yearning in my soul for Christians to know more about authentic Judaism. Yeah,
2: uh, it's interesting you mentioned Heschel uh, because he was one who was kind of claimed by every facet of Judaism.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: Reform said he's one of us; Conservatives, he's one. Of, you know, so he was at he was able to to um, to uh, step in all these ways without being classified as you're orthodox you're conservative you're reform he you know uh, titles like that didn't 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 sit well sit well with him Mm -hmm. and you know that um he marched with martin luther king right he's one who said and i'm sure you've heard this i was praying with my feet that's right that's right Uh, and that kind of goes back to what we said at the very beginning about Judaism being a way of life rooted in religion. Mm-hmm. That if you can't pray with your feet or with your hands, then you're not really praying. And I heard a prayer just the other day. Uh, it had to do with Ukraine. Okay, and I've heard two different kinds of prayers about Ukraine lately. Interesting. And how one of them was, "Dear God, we ask you." I don't remember the exact words, but please cause the war to stop and and please you know shower your gifts upon the ukrainians and it was a plea for god to intervene to do that and another one was had nothing to do with god it was a prayer for us to understand each other may we come to a point where we are cognizant of
3: Hmm.
2: and so the prayer was we ish rather than jewish right. not Jewish, but jewish mm-hmm. and and that's kind of led me to an interesting delving into prayer these days as to what what is what is prayer really? Is it something to change God or is it something to change us?
1: Mm. What a great word! And how oftentimes our prayer is it's more about what we say than what we live, right? Yeah. But true prayer seems to be a lived, uh, a breathing reality in our lives.
2: You know, the the, the Hebrew word for prayer, literal lehit palel, really means to measure yourself. Hmm. To measure yourself either against the highest ideal of yourself, or against your view of God. But how do you how do you stack up? To how do you measure yourself?
3: Hmm.
2: And um, and, and so often prayer is just asking God to do something. Yeah. You know, I ain't going to do it.
1: <laughs> right.
2: You do it. It's You're escapism, God. right? You're escapism, right.
1: Yeah. Um, let's finish with this, I guess. Uh, I'm so very grateful for your Sunday school teacher who taught you that Judaism is a, a way of life rooted in religion. Uh, not just a religion that might occasionally have something to do with your life, uh, which is the way a lot of people look at it, I think. Um, You're a retired Jewish rabbi. I'm a Baptist minister, and uh, we have shared work along the way. Uh, We've had great conversation about the truth along the way. We've partnered along the way. When you imagine interfaith relationships uh, at their best, uh, what do you see if if angels could sing in this world? Uh, what would interfaith relationships look like? Everybody
2: would be Jewish. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's 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 just being able to do things together and not necessarily just talk about. Well, I believe this and you believe that, but you know, what does our faith tell us to do? To, to make the world a better, to, you know, to make the world a better place. What, what can we do together? And and too often our meetings are meetings, you know, they still follow Robert's rules of order, that kind of thing. And and what's the purpose of the meeting is to call the next meeting, right? When is everybody wants to know when do we adjourn and when is our next meeting? Rather than, right. okay, what are we gonna do now? Right. And and uh, I, I wish we were more in the maybe in the nineteen sixties or seventies concept of of doing things. I, I have a feeling to just to bring the political into it that 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 we're going to be doing some things with mm-hmm. the the way the Supreme Court ruling has not ruling but possibility has come down. I think that's going to motivate a lot of people on on every side of the issue to 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 do something i don't know what we're going to do but we're going to do something rather than sit there and go yeah that was great or that's terrible right so we may be in a in a in the next couple of months because it's a political season and also that uh, of of actually trying to get together and do something for the benefit of humanity rather than say you know well let's do something on behalf of fetuses right
1: I do think this moment in time is so uh, wrought with challenge yeah. and also ripe with opportunity. Both of those things are true, yeah. that all people of goodwill are banding together or hopefully will band together and speak with one voice and pray with our feet and uh, let our hands move with mercy and love. Uh, I I pray for that day, and I long for that day and I think uh you've modeled that for fifty years, and for that we're grateful and um I guess I challenge our listeners uh to learn from other faiths, to engage other faiths and you've done a great job with that ah uh, well thanks i I appreciate that and um yeah i conversations with you have made me a better Christian, right. Uh, conversations with my Muslim friends have made me a better Christian. And so I want to, I guess, provoke our listeners to, with intention and grace, seek these interfaith relationships, and let's seek ways to, to do interfaith work in a world that desperately needs it. I uh, think so.
2: if, if, we had a, uh, if we had a community of Preston Cleggs, this would be an ideal world.
1: Uh, well, hey, let's not edit that out. Uh, I want to send that to my mom. Uh, so, thanks, thank, uh, thanks for that, Rabbi. Uh, I, I'm going to take that as gospel truth. You said you wanted everyone to be Jewish. I just want everyone to be Preston Clegg. I think that would make the world yeah. so beautiful. So, and we'll not tell everybody the face that Brittany's making uh, on the screen now. So. Uh, Thanks, Rabbi, for your time and for your presence. Uh, We're most grateful for you and uh, blessings on you and your work. Always a pleasure. Hopefully again soon. Uh, Maybe you'll set the record for our first third time visitor on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you, Rabbi.
2: Okay, thanks.
1: As you go, go and love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Do so as if it's the most important thing in all the world, because it is.
0: Thank you for listening to Because It Is. These are just some of the things that matter to us at Second Baptist Church downtown. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit us online at 2BCLR.com. That's the number 2BCLR.com. And like us on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Brittany Stilwell and edited by Randy Schoenig with Fresh Air Media.